right, Jesse, it's uh, the end of Pride. How many dicks did you suck? I lost track. I was blacked out. But um, no, I actually do have a pretty good, sort of good, by my standards, Pride story. Mm, I'll be the judge of that. I was on a train uh, Sunday, last Sunday, to meet someone at a bar on... Um, the Pride train? The Pride train. Uh, well, it was the Pride train. I was, I was headed to um, St. Mark's Place, which is like a... You know, just how would you describe St. Mark's Place? There's a good episode of, um, what was that show with the SVU? girl? Yeah, <laughs> a lot of dead bodies. What was that show with the uh, Abby and what's her name before one of them got really annoying in Sanctimonious? Broad City. Broad City was excellent. They had a good episode about St. Mark's. St. Mark's is a colorful neighborhood, uh, East Village. Oh, it's a and, colored neighborhood. Mm, I get, yeah, I get what, what you're meant. saying. Colored neighborhood, right. Exactly. Uh, no, I was on a train and it was like very pridey. And then I got off at Astor Place. It was even more pridey. Never have I felt more like... Uh, I'm not a Republican, but I guess that is what, what it's like to feel like a Republican because compared to everyone, I was just like so basic. Uh, I think the real the moment I realized... Oh, also, there were just like what felt like a pretty heavy police presence for a bunch of like awkward, prided out like 16 and 17-year-olds. So that was sort of funny. But the moment I realized um, we'd achieved true equality was when I saw walking toward me what I think was like a 16-year-old girl wearing a shirt with that timeless motto, I ate all the pussy. <laughs> yeah. So you think it was a girl? <laughs> I think I am assigning her female. Yeah. Well, you saw more Pride action than I did this year because I uh, I did what I always do on Pride. I have an annual tradition of staying home. It's very lesbian of me. Do you just not? You do nothing. You feel no sense of pride during it. No sense of pride. I feel shame and guilt. Um, I uh, on occasion I don't go to Seattle Pride for obvious reasons. On occasion I will go. You get you get murdered on site. I'd get murdered. Yes, I have a couple times been to our like local small town county Pride, but it's just too depressing. I can't I can't do it anymore. Although I did, I did do one 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 sort of pride related thing this year. I was trying to get to the uh, the bottom of a story that I couldn't get to the bottom of it, so I won't tell tell the whole thing. But basically, there's some allegations circulating about uh, the owner of a of a of an event like a, a queer a lesbian dance party in Seattle there was an article about it in a, a local paper and I was trying to figure out what because spe- the allegations are always vague right and so I was trying to figure out specifically what happened um, so I got in this app I had to be told what the like queer dating apps are there's one called Lex Lex like our, our Lex yeah like our Lex no I assume it's named after the Lexington which was a famed lesbian bar in san francisco which i had been to several times before it closed but so now it's an app of course there's no bar left it's just the app but i uh so i got on the app and i i made a profile i said that my name actually i'm not going to say my name because i my username because i don't want to get kicked off the app but let's just say it's toast it was like an inanimate object and i said that i was non-binary they them and so i started chatting with people asking them questions trying to figure out what the real story is about this allegation. I unfortunately did not get to the bottom of it, but the app, it, it has a, an, a misconnection section within the app, which is, I think, kind of a good idea for a dating app, especially. Um, and so the first post that I, that I saw, the headline is Hazmat. Hey, if you were the raccoon furry named Hazmat, you should message me. I'd love to get to know you. <laughs> so I figured that was like kind of the perfect way to spend pride was like trying to catfish people into giving me information and, uh, and looking at Misconnections for furries. I think there's like there's like a article in that idea that we used to have bars, now we just have apps. It's a really deep observation. That's a free idea for anyone listening. <laughs> so did you see any like toddlers being molested or anything like that at Pride? This is the talk of the talk of Twitter is uh, all the nudity at Pride and all the kids seeing it. 
I kept everyone I saw on the subway and on the street on St. Mark's. I asked, do you know where the children are? Um, and they just, I didn't get any responses. No, I did not. I saw zero other than the grooming I tried to do. I saw no grooming, actually. Yeah, I saw Andy know. He was very upset that there were lots of titties out at Pride. Um, and he posted a photo of, of just like these women and topless. What he didn't seem to realize was that the photos that he was posting were of the Dyke March. So this is yeah. not like the family-friendly section of Pride. This is the Dyke March. People might take their kids to the Dyke March, but if they do, like that's a personal problem. Don't take your kids to the Dyke March. There's like conservatives losing their fucking. I mean, it's just it's the hysteria over the drag queens and the grooming. I mean, to me, it seems like there's just like a very simple solution here, which is you can have both nudity at Pride, or like in Seattle, they have these naked bike rides for the solstice. I think you can have public events like that, especially in cities where it's legal. Like it's legal to be nude in Seattle. Just don't call them family friendly. And if you're a family and you want to take your kid to Pride, either you're a queer parent or your kids are gay or whatever, just take them to the events that are labeled family friendly. That seems like a pretty good solution. You could have the nudist over here and the kids over here and never the twain shall meet. Katie, what is the name of this very not proud podcast? This is Blocked and Reported and I'm Katie Herzog. And I'm Jesse Single. And this week you're going to tell me a story about some stuff, right? Yeah, we got stuff coming up. Got some stuff before the stuff. We've got a uh, the latest campus cancellation question mark story. I'll uh, I'll be leading that one off. Uh, before that, oh, we also have some dog news, right? We do. We got some some PETA news. Uh, PETA or pedo? PETA. Both actually. Or the food. I'm really hungry actually. Uh, before all that, just a quick correction. We talked last week about crazy woman said the new College of Florida's. Uh, Banyan tree mascot was racist. We had to side with Chris Rufo on that because uh, it was crazy. I said, or I think I asked you, so this is your fault. Katie, do you know what the uh, Florida mascot is? You said the Seminoles, and we pointed out that you'd think that would be more racist. Maybe focus on that. Two problems with that. We were wrong. It's the squaws. The squaws, right. Now, Florida's the Gators, as I should have known. I did know. I brain fart. Florida State is the Seminoles. Also, uh, listeners wrote in to say there's some sort of agreement with the actual Seminole tribe. So it's cool. It's all good. It's not racist. We we decide what's racist and what's not, and that's not racist. It's official. We apologize to the Gators. Hold on. Let me stamp, let me stamp the form. Not racist. Seminoles can keep doing it. This is Gator Erasure, and we apologize. Gator, gator Erasure. Uh, okay, so you had a really disturbing <laughs> story to kick things off today, right? Yeah, so I saw a very strange headline in the HuffPo a couple weeks ago. Is it called The HuffPo or just HuffPo now? I think it's always been inconsistent. The Huffington Post or HuffPo, but anyway. Well, let's, let's go with the uh, formal name. The Huffington Post. Penn State professor charged for alleged bestiality with his colleague. Subhead, I do it to blow oh. off steam. The pro- you said collie or collie? Collie. Collie. His colleague's a dog. <laughs> His colleague, a collie. I do it to blow off steam, the professor reportedly told officials. So this was this piece was not original to the HuffPo. It was cribbed from the statecollege.com, which is a local publication out, out, uh, out of State College, Pennsylvania. Seamus Matsukas, a 64-year-old professor of chemical engineering at Penn State's University Park campus, was charged on Monday in Huntington County with misdemeanor counts of open lewdness indecent exposure and sexual intercourse with an animal as well no. as summer, yeah as well as summer accounts of cruelty to animals and disorderly conduct okay so but here's the funny part <laughs> oh this is the funny part that was that wasn't funny now we're getting okay sorry here's Acor- the funny part according I'm, I'm still reading here according to an affidavit of probable cause filed by a department of conservation and natural resources ranger the dcnr installed a trail camera in the parking lot of the allen seager natural area in jackson township on april 12th 
to identify individuals who were stealing bags of hand sanitizer from public restrooms. Okay, so they watch this video. They see the guy fucking the dog. They're like, this doesn't interest us. He didn't steal any hand sanitizer. (laughs) I'm going to continue reading here. The cameras, quote, captured multiple brief videos that allegedly showed a man later identified as Matsukas, who was naked except for a ski mask, rich wa- wristwatch, boots, and a backpack. Honestly, who wears a watch anymore? Masturbating near the women's restroom and then engaging in a sexual act with a dog. The videos also showed that Matsukas appeared to, appeared to be recording himself with an iPad. This is such a boomer thing to do. Oh, I was going to say he's definitely a bar pod listener. <laughs> okay, so weird story. Uh, and we got an email from a listener who actually knows Dr. Mansukas. She was a student at Penn State over 20 years ago. She said that she always held him in high regard. She liked him as a professor. So she emailed his attorney a note of support because this this story obviously went viral. She felt bad for the guy, I assume. And his attorney actually replied back and uh, said this, quote, Most people have been misled by media accounts into thinking he is accused of having sex with a dog, which is not what the park rangers and DA are alleging. Rather... They allege that he was walking around outside naked and the dog licked his butt while he was naked. The DA is taking the position that this constitutes sexual intercourse with an animal, which is very misleading. I mean, it's more like that's like second base at best. For sure. I don't know. I mean, butt licking, does it count as rimming? Yeah, butt licking. What part of no, the butt? Not, was no. it the cheek? Was it the hole? I, I don't, we don't need to get into this, but there's a huge difference between... We don't need to. Um... <laughs> I was like trying to make an earnest point, but I was like, we don't, we don't need to. Okay. So, so the fake news at its worst, he didn't engage in an active act of penetration with the dog. The dog licked his butt, but he was naked walking around in a, on a public trail. We don't know. This is what the attorney said. The attorney is obviously has a, has incentive to paint this in the most appropriate light. He was trying to get this woman to write a letter of support for the court for for his client. Yeah. But there's a hearing scheduled for July 19th. And if they actually have video of this event, this should probably be a sort of an open and shut case. Was he fucking the dog or did the collie just lick his butt? Also, I got to say, collie? Really? A collie? <laughs> Um, Our listener, by the way, uh, says that he was a great professor and he never struck her as particularly odd. And she said that she can kind of see how the confines of academia, he's in this, you know, actual hard science, would drive someone to do weird shit like take naked hikes in the woods if, in fact, that that was all that he was doing. Now, okay, so this is obviously weird as hell and it got a lot of attention online, of course. People were both outraged and grossed out for obvious reasons. And the ick factor here just, yeah, it's 10. Like the idea of getting sexy with a dog, especially a collie, pretty gross. I'm a dog lover. Pretty gross. But I have to say, I started thinking about this. Oh, no. Where is this going? (laughs) What room do you have to maneuver here, Katie? I just wonder how many of the people who were truly outraged about this story eat meat? (laughs) Like what is worth, Jesse? Killing an animal and eating it, actually torturing it, because most factory farming yeah. is actual torture, and it results in death, not like a dog blowjob or whatever. Not a good time. Right. And there's just very little outrage about this outside of animal rights circles. And I just, I find that interesting. And I'm guilty of this as well. Like, I eat meat. I was a vegetarian for almost 20 years, but I do eat meat now. I don't eat much of it. I don't eat much of it. I do eat it, though. And I just think that if we're going to, like call this animal cruelty how is it not animal i'm like i can tell people they're i'm losing i'm losing the crowd how is it not animal cruelty to keep animals in tiny cages so that they can't move 
and then kill them painfully and then eat them. And that's not just legal. That's like our economy is partially based on this. This is just what we do. Yeah. I mean, you're talking to a vegetarian. I agree with all that. Uh, right. I'm just not sure I'm getting the... I feel like you're just doing a version of like, you're mad at this. Why aren't you mad about that? I just, th- I think that one is worse. I think that this thing that we accept is totally normal. Yeah. Killing an animal is worse than having yeah. sex with an animal. It's less gross though. I, guess, I mean, honestly, it depends how good the sex is for the animal. Yeah. So are you penetrating the animal or is something else happening? That was talking about this reminded me of, I saw this weird like indie movie. Oh, really, Jesse? It's like a drama <laughs> where one of the plot points involved one of these like groups of friends, like I think dying from being fucked by a horse this was me i want to say like 2017 2018 you have a special interest in this Mm -hmm, of course okay okay so that i don't know what movie you're talking about but in the early 2000s there was a a case there okay this is weird there's a a little town in washington in washington called enumclaw it's not too far from here and they had a like a local horse farm or whatever had there was these this like ring of men who would go to this farm and have sex with these horses, like be penetrated by these horses. And one of them actually died from a perforated bowel. Jesus. He was like dropped off at the at the ER, right? My former colleague, Charles Mandede from The Stranger, he made a documentary film about this. He went to Enumclaw. He also wrote about it for The Stranger. He went to Enumclaw, tried to talk to people about it. As you can imagine, locally, they were not thrilled that this that this was like became the reputation. This is really going to put us on the map. I mean, anytime, like if you were around during that time, if you know about this story, Enumclaw is like synonymous with horse. Farm, yeah, you know? yeah. That's anytime, and it's a beautiful area. Lots of horse farms. I just, just quickly, we we should probably wrap up our bestiality segment. I don't. I also don't understand where the guy masturbating public will probably also be an obstacle to any sort of like uh, stout defense. Why was he mad? He was caught on camera masturbating. That's not great. It's not ideal. I think just if the it's possible that the news got this totally wrong, but this will like sure. if there's video of this, they also raided his house and they found the iPad and they found the, you know, the face mask and the watch and all yeah. of that shit. So uh, I could see, I could see both prosecutors and the media like really painting someone in art like. Walking around naked, dog licks your butt. It's a little weird, but someone totally like that weird. should not be tarred. It is weird, but you should not be tarred as engaging in bestiality. That's very different from if you actually fucked a dog. Right. So I hope the legal system can parse out these distinctions. First that, and then we need to find out who stole the hand sanitizer. Mm-hmm. But then we can get back to the real the real uh, villain. Uh, well, thank you for that, Katie, I guess. You're welcome, I guess. All right, let's talk about the latest sort of culture war story involving uh, campus stuff. Although I'm sure by the time... We published this. There'll be another one. Uh, there's this guy named Yoel Inbar. Yoel is a very good dude. I'm biased here. I, I like this guy a lot. I, I know he's a good dude partly because he's a um, social psychologist whose name comes up. He's worked on issues like disgust, which is a feeling our listeners are now well acquainted with after the first part of this episode. Uh, <laughs> moral beliefs, other related subjects. He's done some work on the question of whether academic psychology is dominated by liberals which will be relevant here. Uh, back in the day, he also played an important role in revealing the fraud perpetrated by Diedrich Stapel. You can never pronounce that. Dutch social psychologist, like notorious for this huge case of data fabrication. One of the biggest scandals uh, in the history of social psychology. Um, I also, I met Yoel. Uh, he was the then his then co-host, Mickey Inslick, on this podcast, Two Psychologists, Four Beers. It involves some of my favorite pursuits, drinking and talking about psychology. I went on there. I happened to be in Toronto. Um, so again, pretty biased. How many beers did you drink? Um, it was two psychologists, four beers. I, 
probably had the four. Um, there was also, they had just legalized weed in Canada or in that part of Canada. So they were very excited about that. And that was also part of it. Um, okay. So Yoel Inbar just went on another good podcast called Very Bad Wizards. I'm sure we have some listener overlap. Uh, he told hosts Tamler Summers and Dave Pizarro about this frustrating experience he had. Um, wait, wait, wait. Is Very Bad Wizards, is Tamler, is, or is one of them the one who helps you with your rap? Yeah. Uh, Dave Pizarro helped me produce the Emmy-nominated, uh, what was it called? Juicy yeah. Replication Crisis rap. Which okay, we we probably have a lot more new listeners since you uh, did this replication crisis wrap. This was Jesse agreed to do this one. I think we hit four thousand paying subscriber or like four thousand dollars or some something. Some early for, milestone, yeah, yeah. And it took him six months to do it, um, but he did it. it Jesse, send me the MP3 and I'll, I'll I'll put a link in the show notes. It's Maybe. I c- cannot we'll believe see. I'm saying this, but it's actually good. Oh, thank you. Uh, I don't know if it was good. Uh, Pizarro made it much better. I mean, he like actually makes beats and stuff. Anyway. Um, Yoel tells a story I will briefly sum up. I did a newsletter about this that gets more into, it's like a sort of nerdier argument, less focused on internet bullshit. We'll include a link to that. Short version. Katie, in academia, um, if you are having sex with someone who gets hired by an academic institution, they'll maybe hire you too. Isn't that a pretty good system? You can sleep into a position? Human or collie? <laughs> Was that the uh, issue? The collie wanted to get a partner position, you think? With exactly. Pen? So Yoel, who's dating a, a human woman, to be clear, um, he's at University of Toronto. His girlfriend lives five or six hour drive away, sort of fairly long distance. She gets a job at UCLA in the psych department. She puts his name in for a partner hire. In Yoel's telling, and I trust Yoel, he's just like a down-to-earth guy, not very blustery. I, I do trust him. I default to trusting him. Doesn't mean he's right about all this, but what he says happens is UCLA seems very enthusiastic about, about event, uh, potentially hiring him. They fly him out to UCLA, as you do when you're on the job market, uh, for a professorship. Uh, they seem more geared at recruiting him um, than like really evaluating him he seems like he's on the right track there to get a job uh during his visit there is a little bit of weirdness um some of it occurs during a meeting with a small diversity committee that is now apparently enmeshed in the ucla hiring process in bar during this meeting he's told that it has been brought to the diversity folks attention that four and a half years earlier he expressed skepticism of uh campus diversity statements no. I know. I know. How, how much do you know about sort of the, the debate over diversity statements? I know a little bit about it. I know that in North Carolina, the UNC Board of Governors, which is a basically a political a bunch of political appointees who run the uh, run the um, the state university system. Uh, so they did something. It's a it's a Republican controlled board. And they've done a lot of stuff that I very, very much disagree with. But they did something I actually agree with put out a new policy regarding compelled speech. And the policy is basically that universities can't require employees or applications for any kind of academic department or employment to sign a statement saying that they describe to any particular belief. So I did appreciate that. Yeah. Which would outlaw this whole thing. It would take multiple episodes to fully get into the uh, diversity statement controversy because like it really depends. It's in the doing whether or not it's legal. The University of California system thinks it's legal since um, for a while now, that's been a mandatory part. If you're applying for any job, a professorship job in the UC system, you have to fill out, submit a diversity statement. That That is crazy. Critics of this suggest that like really they're just, they're not, they don't actually 
it's very gameable. You're just like supposed to say the right, express the right values, structural racism, blah, blah, blah. So four and a half years ago on Two Psychologists, Four Beers, Yoel Inbar, who's very much a liberal, basically expressed some skepticism of that, not on the grounds that he's against diversity, equity, and inclusivity. Uh, he very much is not against those things. He's for them, but he was basically just suggesting that this was like a signaling exercise rather than useful. And that's why he was um, skeptical of them. Uh, we'll include a Chronicle article on the, of the broader debate about uh, these diversity statements. So there he is. He's in an office uh, with the diversity folks or wherever they're meeting. They raise that issue. They also tell him that he should be aware that um, there's some very passionate graduate students at UCLA. And they ask Yoel Inbar, if graduate students ask you about what you said on this podcast four and a half years ago, how would you answer that question? To which he's like, well, I'd basically just like say what I what I just told you about how I feel about it. I will say I'm not an expert on um, how academic hiring works. I feel like it's probably not a good side when, when you're being told Graduate students might have a problem with a thing you said in a non-academic setting four and a half years ago. That probably suggests this process is not going that smoothly, I feel like. Uh, yeah, for sure. Speaking of passionate uh, grad students, Yoel Inbar also has a meeting with grad students. At this meeting, and here I have a direct quote from how Yoel explained it to the Very Bad Wizards guys, uh, one of the grad students in the psych department, quote, talked kind of extensively about how bad the department was, how much racism there was, how there were abusive professors, how the administration was letting all that slide, which is, in a recruitment visit, is strange. That's how Yoel Inbar described it. Right. Uh, dur during dinner with faculty, Inbar subsequently described that exchange as intense. The faculty members explained that it might partly have been connected to really bad blood that developed between grad students and faculty during a recent grad student strike. Despite these minor hiccups during his trip, Inbar flies home to Toronto, confident, pretty confident he'll be offered a job. A lot of the signs were good. And, and partner hire, so partner hires have like a leg up, right? Because you're trying to use it to, as an incentive to hire the, yeah. the original candidate. They have a leg up. It is absolutely not a guarantee. I mean, there's a, like, like Inbar, Inbar is not like a young, unknown uh, professor. He runs a lab at the University of Toronto, which is like a good research institution. But there's only so many slots for jobs like these. So having a chance to be a professor at a place like UCLA is a very big deal. And um, Yoel said on the podcast, he's not sure he would have taken it, but it was, it was obviously, it's a, it's a good position. And yes, being a partner gives you a leg up. It definitely gets you a foot in the door. You might not have had otherwise. Um, and Inbar flies home to Toronto, pretty confident about this. That'll be offered the job. Then there's silence, silence longer than you'd expect. He was expecting to hear it back soon. Then he gets an alarmed email from one of his allies within UCLA a letter was circulating signed by dozens of psychology grad students demanding UCLA not hire him. Damn. That's not a good sign? Not a great sign when you're the subject of an open letter. So the complaints both had to do with his stance on diversity statements, but also um, he said also on the podcast, also a while ago, that organizations like the Society for Personality and Social Psychology, which is just like the professional organization for that corner of psychology, shouldn't issue statements on hot button topics like abortion. Um, this is one of those areas where like the mind sort of reels at the difference between like the average American and some corners of academia. I feel like 
people of all political stripes are pretty good at understanding that it's one thing to believe something and it's another thing to have like professional organizations endorsing that view, right? Well, I don't know if all political stripes would agree with that statement, Jesse. I think there are a certain number of people who think that, yes, all organizations from corporations to the government to your local neighborhood school should be endorsing, you know, their preferred political ideology it's just yeah i mean i guess what i'm getting at is like this is this is such a moderate opinion um yeah i mean i don't think the people demanding that like rj reynolds release a statement on blm are the majority right um so the letter also had this accusation remember as inbar tells it and i confirmed with him that this is what he said happened a grad student calls her whole department racist bashes it he then goes to dinner with faculty and says that that exchange was intense or her saying that was intense. Here's here's what the letter says. Finally, we were deeply troubled to discover that following this graduate student meeting, he attended a dinner with faculty where he labeled a graduate student who is a woman of color as quote intense in response to her questions about DEI efforts. So, you can see the uh slightly weaselly dishonest way they're expressing that, assuming Imbar telling the truth, right? Right. That reminds me of okay, so when I was at The Stranger, we would do these meetings, these um, meetings with local politicians or people running for office. And there's a woman who was on the city, Seattle City Council for a long time. Her name is Shama Sawant. She's an Indian woman. She's very, very loud. She is sort of famously loud. Like she doesn't need a microphone. She doesn't I need feel like a, you've told this story before. I might have. Yeah. She's so fucking loud. Like my ears ring when I'm in the same room as her because she's so loud. She left and somebody else, it wasn't me, I don't think. Somebody else commented on, like, the volume of her voice, and a younger staffer was, like, fucking livid that somebody would have the audacity to say that a woman of color was loud. And I was just like, what if it's actually true? I I believe— What if this woman was being intense? What if this black woman was being intense? What if this Indian woman was being loud? Like, are you not supposed to make observations about people, even if they're fucking true? Totally. Yeah, I think in this context, it would probably be a bad idea at a faculty dinner to describe a particular student as intense. But I could see Yoel Inbar saying that that was an intense moment or that was an intense sure. meeting. Or um, she was telling an this, intense story. Yeah, it's just this abstraction where uh, he labeled a graduate student who is a woman of color as intense, as though that's inherently... It's just... Uh, Racist. You and I have both seen a number of these open letters, and there there is something to the genre that they tend to be... I don't know. Not not entirely true. Right. Um, so, or they're I just like they're like her. the like written in the least charitable way light possible. Oh, just insanely, yeah. It's it's a genre. Let me just get to another highlight. Uh, when probed about his mentoring experiences with underrepresented minorities, uh, URM individuals, he meeting Inbar shared that his primary approach to supporting graduate students generally is one where he quote just asks what's going on because graduate students will will tend to tell you end quote. This response leads us to believe that he does not appreciate the importance of power dynamics or invisible barriers that prevent students from feeling empowered to advocate for themselves, particularly students from URM backgrounds. So Inbar is like, they're like, what do you do to support these students? Inbar is like, I engage with them. I ask them how they're doing. This shows Inbar is a monster. That makes sense, right? Right. Total sense. Okay. Um, so... Again, you could go to my newsletter if you want. The complaint, the actual complaints are just really stupid, and they don't come anywhere close to responding to Inbar's actual arguments he's made over the years. We'll also include links to the old podcasts that they're mad about. I, I do think like part of this is something we've seen before where you're sort of like not allowed anything with a DEI label on it, you're just not allowed to question it. 
Like no matter how right. weird the specifics are, no matter Yoel Inbar is making very substantive points about things like what kinds of DEI interventions we do or whether there could be trade-offs to professional organizations publicly adopting liberal positions. It just seems like the expectations you're not allowed to question any of that, right? Yeah, like how would these academics respond if somebody actually wants to, you know, I don't know, study the efficacy of diversity statements? That to me makes me think that even studying this sort of thing would be absolutely taboo, which you do not want in a university. No, it just there was so much groupthink in this letter. It's so poorly reasoned and argued, but but we're really here to focus on the internet bullshit. And there was a lot of it. One of the things that jumped out at me was like, there's this obsession now, I think because of the last few years of cancel culture discourse where like it didn't really seem it seemed like people only cared a little bit whether the letter was true what was really important is whether you were pro or anti-wokeness or cancel culture so like this ucla social psych student zach oxford posts a really useful document which is a counter letter apparently signed by some other students and it has some useful details like the fact that the original letter was sent out with very little time for students to decide whether or not to sign it but when he's tweeting it he goes the anti-woke crowd have used the fact that there was a counter letter disseminated by UCLA grad students as evidence not all students are in favor of DEI. As one of the writers of that letter, I'd like to be clear that this couldn't be farther from the truth. You can read it here. It's just So are all of those students in favor of DEI? That's I, sort of hard to believe. It, it, it makes... Right. It's like, I don't even know what we're talking about, but it's so tribalistic and binary. Either you're for DEI or you're against DEI. When... Almost everyone involved in this conversation is a political liberal. No one, almost no one involved is like, I don't want diversity. I don't value diversity. But there's like really complicated debates over how to achieve diversity. And and it's just, that gets collapsed to being pro or anti-diversity, which is stupid. Um, there were- well, yeah, DEI itself. I mean, that is an act, like when, when somebody says DEI, I don't think they're talking about actual diversity. I think of this, this sort of bureaucratic HR style. Yeah. Robin D'Angelo yeah. style almost. Yeah. This like those sorts of trainings. That's a very different question from do you think that inherent that diversity itself is inherently a good thing or a bad thing? And you would think in 2023 you'd realize this. I mean, I, I wrote a column about this for the Times, how a lot of these interventions have no evidence behind them and suck up millions of dollars. My book has a chapter on the implicit association test, which is one of the favorite tools of the DEI industry. And I bet we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars on the IAT at this point, and there's no evidence it works. This idea that if you criticize a specific tool or specific argument, you're against DEI is asinine, and you have like the next generation of public intellectuals making that argument. It's so dumb. Um, The taste just got... Well, I I mean, I think it's even more nefarious than that, because like you're saying for against DEI, just say diversity. Like you can oppose these DEI trainings and still think that diversity, that there's something inherently good about diversity. Yeah, there was also like some of the takes were so bad. Here's Noah Haber. He's a a social scientist. He tweeted, I frankly don't care about the details and don't think we should be taking one dude's self-account of being quote unquote canceled at face value. But I will say this, if a shit ton of students stick out their necks to say something, our default should be to assume they know something. (laughs) What do you think about that, Katie? Yeah, I mean, like a bunch of students are pointing at Goody Adams saying, look, she floats, she floats. You know, like, should we believe them at face value? This is ridiculous. Why would they stick their neck out if they didn't believe that? Or like, look at all these all these students from the 20th century supporting Chairman Mao. Uh-huh. Like, I think we should default to believe them. Or why would they stick their necks out? Um, look, I'm obviously not comparing these kids directly to Maoists, but it's just like, it's a ridiculous argument. And also, he starts it with, I frankly don't care about the details. 
right. to his credit, Noah Haber is um, remains true to that sentiment <laughs> because he then says Yoel Inbar said he was canceled when he said the opposite. He said, like, I'm not trying to portray myself as canceled. I have a good job. I have a good life. So, like, uh, it's just, it's bad. But this take that we should reflectively believe the students didn't really age that well. Um, that's because of another thread posted by Val Gonzalez, a psych uh, postdoc at UCLA. So this this thread got 178 retweets. That's not a lot if you're Taylor Swift. For a fairly niche controversy like this, a thread that gets 178 retweets is having a big impact on a conversation. I saw people referencing this thread um, to argue against the narrative that these are just crazy student activists. So Val Gonzalez, PhD at V Laughmaker. It starts, I sign this too. There is there is a lot of fallacies in this thread. He was not going to get the offer. His offense was not just expressing skepticism and students do not decide over search committees. That's tweet one. Tweet four is where it gets really damning. Fourth, I was there and I saw him making inappropriate comments to students, complain to other faculty about problematic students. He even said that diversity issues do not intercept with his research and moral behavior. Katie, that's pretty damning, right? She was there. She saw Yoel Inbar making inappropriate comments. I feel like we don't need any more details. He should probably actually be fired from his current position, right? I mean, yeah, inappropriate comments. That's bad. Also, I love inappropriate comments, which like, it's just this really fucking sleazy thing where no one's like... That could be literally anything. Yes. And inappropriate comments is designed... I'm sorry. That's intentional word choice. That is designed to make your mind go to a specific place. Is it not... That, yeah, that could be either from like, you look nice today, or I fucked my collie outside the ranger station. It could be really anything. Yes, or he licked my butt. It could be anywhere on the spectrum. Or he licked my butt. Okay, so she was there. She saw him making inappropriate comments to students, complained to other faculty, firsthand witness of what a horrible impression Yoel Inbar made. Uh, Katie, read this next tweet, which was posted sometime later. Update. When I said I was there, I was too vague. Sorry. I did not imply I was in every meeting. I don't own the truth. I was just giving some context to the original tweet as a person that is at UCLA and knew a few more details and know some of the students are concerned. To which Yoel Inbar himself, who is not someone who gets in fights online, replies, just to be clear, you were in no meetings and I never met you. Mm. Inventing damaging accusations about someone is not a good thing to do. So one more time, I was there. I saw him making inappropriate comments to students. Update, when I said I was there, I was too vague. Sorry. I mean, Jesse, so, Jesse, Jesse, what does I, I mean, this all depends on the definition of I was there. It's very ambiguous. It's very Clintonian. Mm -hmm. What's the definition of the word mm -hmm. is? Uh, so the point is, maybe you shouldn't automatically trust an online mob. Maybe you should look into the truth of the matter. Uh, not just because people lie, though a small number of people certainly do that, but also like people act really weird in these situations. These like we've seen so many of these searingly judgmental open letters where like the the text of the letter doesn't match what the person actually did. You would think people would be a little bit savvier about all this by now. I mean, you would also think that people wouldn't like Val's name is attached to this. That's really damning to to lie like that in in a public forum, especially in something that has to do with your job or your academic career yeah it's crazy i mean i i gotta say you should not you should get in trouble with that at your university if you directly do you want to sign my open letter yeah, if you lie about someone in your field publicly I, I don't want this person's career ruined but that's like that's really fucking serious and there's this been with weird thing where people are like stuff on twitter isn't real life and liars get away with it i think that's really bad you just care too much about the details yeah exactly okay so a 
psych grad student at UCLA reached out to us and pointed him your way. Uh, did you speak with him? Yes. So over email, this was someone I was able to confirm is a grad student there. Um, provided some useful, more information. Not you know, no like bombshells, no nothing crazy, but he said some interesting stuff. Uh, I'll just read some from his letter. Uh, try quote, trying to give you a clear picture of the story. Cause I think it's important. This is told accurately. I really like Yoel and his work and was frustrated by this whole ordeal, but also no one respect a lot of the people that signed the opposition letter to him and don't want to see them dragged through the mud. I feel like at this point I do want to see something dragged through the mud, separate issue, dot, dot, dot. The UC strike essentially caused a civil war within the psych department between students and faculty and even among the faculty. Yoel joked about professors not wanting to grade uh, on the podcast, but most students stopped doing experiments and research in general. This caused huge rifts and obviously had knock-on effects on faculty's productivity and securing grants. Plus, now that the grad students will receive larger stipends, the department has to take fewer students, dot, dot, dot. Just total chaos in the department that he thinks partly explained this And, and what was the strike about? Is this grad student striking for better pay, things like that? Better pay, yeah, yeah. Um, and apparently it got really heated. They won. Uh, they mentioned on the podcast they won uh, that strike. Quote, as mentioned elsewhere, the students were asked to sign this in the dead of night and given all the strike stuff, it was framed again as a students versus old bad faculty strife. Apparently, several people who signed the initial letter against Yoel ended up signing the one in support of him immediately <laughs> after and more just felt like they were duped into signing it. Of those who signed the initial email, I'd say maybe 20% knew anything about Yoel, his work, and the podcast. Um, I did like reach out to him. I was like, do, you know, what? where are you getting that 20% figure? Do you have anything to really support that? He was, he was just guessing. That wouldn't surprise me because Yoel Lindbar is not a household name. Um, he's a respected researcher, but I wouldn't expect the average grad student to know much about him. Um, Quote, I did hear from a faculty member that they were not impressed by Yoel's job talk. This is N equals one, uh, sample size of one. And knowing Yoel's work, I think he would have been a fantastic fit at UCLA. But I do think it's possible that he did not give as slam dunk of a performance as he mentioned on Very Bad Wizards. Um, so, yeah. And then he just explains that he finds it super embarrassing that those getting PhD in psychology didn't see these like insanely obvious groupthink dynamics. Uh, and he just, it sounds like this was a total shit show where... The letter went out at 1 a.m. They had to choose to sign it or not sign it, which would be a decision that all their friends would know about in the department by 4 p.m. If you're a busy grad student, there's no way you would have time to look into Yoel and Bar and listen to the podcast in question and decide whether the letter was accurate. So this is just like sort of, I don't know, red guard bullshit. Like they, I, I think a lot of people were pressured in signing this and now their names are on it forever and their names are out, which some people treated like a war crime. This is kept on a public Google Doc. Anyone could just go to this link and find it. So, like, I don't know. How should we feel about, like, these kids being exposed? This was sent to hundreds of people. You can't expect something like that to be kept private, I feel like. I mean, unless they were told that this was going to be kept private, then no. I mean, that would be a betrayal of their of their privacy. But no, if it's an open letter, it's an open letter. Um, I was struck by one thing about the letter i was so they they sign their names and then they of course put their uh pronouns because you need to know someone's pronouns when they're signing an open letter overwhelming maybe not overwhelming a lot of she hers a lot of she hers fewer he hims only one they them wait one Very out surprising. of dozens yeah i saw one i saw just that is one. incredibly surprising given like current demographics. i know huh maybe the maybe the moment of the day they them has passed um okay so has he gotten officially rejected from the job yet? Or Oh yeah, sorry. I definitely should have said that. But yes, he was he was rejected from the job, yeah. Okay, so even if he was rejected for other reasons, his job talk wasn't good, they have a better candidate, whatever, 
the fact that all that this all became public is going to make and to me does make it look like the university was cowed by these students. Yeah. So whether or not it actually was the students, that's what it looks like. There's a couple of different things here. So Yoel explained on the podcast that he was not the job he was not rejected through the normal procedure uh, that you would have a otherwise credible candidate be rejected like through a faculty vote. His argument was that this bureaucratic lever was pulled that allowed them to not hold a faculty vote at all, oh. which he said was unusual for someone who's being seriously considered. Um, again, if I don't think he's misrepresenting that, that'd be a crazy thing to publicly misrepresent. If people disagree, they can let us know. So I view that as strong evidence something weird happened here. And yes, even if he was rejected for other reasons, I, I think it's newsworthy that these are like this many social psych or newsworthy for those of us who care about these issues that a letter like this, that really suggests you're not allowed to disagree about specific DEI claims, let alone like just be conservative. Um, that so many social uh, psych students would sign this is just a really bad sign. So whether or not this was the reason, and I think it was just sort of not just bad signals, a lot of red flags, as, as they'd say. I, yeah, I guess the opposing argument is that, you know, these are students who are these are they're being activists. They're standing up for what they think is right. Um, and as always, that's totally within their rights. And I think it is on, on, yeah. uh, incumbent upon the administration to not listen. Yes. Students should always be ignored is what you're saying. Be seen and not heard. Actually, both. Yeah. Uh, seen but not heard. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I, I'm worried about what happens when some of these folks get in positions of power. Luckily, there's just no jobs left anywhere, so it'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> joking. I hope everyone gets great jobs, uh, especially Val. Um, okay. That's enough of that. Should we do housekeeping? Let's do it. Okay. So uh, housekeeping, we are podcastblockchainreporter.org. Check that out. If you want, you can become a primo where for just $5 a month and up, you get access to three extra episodes a month, including one we just did that covered Schindler's List, porn, YouTubers, virtual YouTubers, weird Japanese sex stuff, and a variety of other subjects. I feel like that's a pretty good ad for That's already. actually what Schindler's List is about, <laughs> the remake. Yes. Uh, barpodmerch.com for all your merch needs. Apparently, the Park Slope Panther shirts are selling well, or so we were told. Hey, um, we got some new we got some new merch in. And uh, did you see we, we got our check for last month's sales? Mm. Uh, $28 million? $22. And yes, we will be splitting that. You get uh, Wait, is 10%. that for the whole month? Yes. Please we shouldn't say that publicly. That's Why not? not? We, should, we just shouldn't say it. It's just really, it's like, I don't know. It's just embarrassing. Yeah, I that's think. what's funny about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Please go by, Mark. Yeah, so keep by. We'll cut out me saying we should cut it. Okay. Uh, I think it's funnier if we say that you should cut it. If we don't cut any of this out. All right, well then cut out this part. Let's not cut out any of it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> God damn it, I'm fucking trapped. Buy some merch. Cut out, Please okay, start the whole episode over. Um. <laughs> Blockchainreported.reddit.com is the subreddit. Uh, what else? Did you talk about our primo yet? Yes. Why? It's like you oh, blacked shit. out during housekeeping, which is the most oh, exciting part of the show. You know what? You know what? I I realize that there's something that we never tout when we're talking about the primo. Primos get early episodes. They're they uh, they get the show like two or three days early. Yes, and uh, if we happen to maybe be bringing ads back, they will also be ad free. But more on that soon. Mm-hmm. Cool. Anything else? Did you do the primo yet? <laughs> Dude, I, I need like I need a new partner. Um, if you want to apply to be co-host of this podcast, send your <laughs> maybe Yoel Yoel Inbar has podcasting experience and he has like True. smart critic of DI programs. Okay, Katie, let's get to the second half. What what do you got? All right, Jesse, are you familiar with a TikToker named Mizzy? Nope. 
Okay. Any TikToker, the answer is probably likely to be no. I don't know who Mizzy is now. We might need to hire someone just to be our TikTok correspondent because both of us refuse to get on the app. Uh, okay, so Mizzy is an 18-year-old London-based YouTuber and TikToker. His real name is Bakari Bronzo Garo. And his whole bit is pulling pranks on people. And they're not fun pranks like the time I gave some Mormon missionaries your address and phone number. That was a fun prank. Mm-hmm. These pranks are more like walking into people's homes. Trespassing would be the other word for that. Sealing their dogs, jumping on cars, leapfrogging over Orthodox Jews, riding an e-bike in stores, etc. And we have a clip of one of these videos here. Jesse, why don't you uh, narrate what's going on here? Is this my Uber prank? He's getting into a car that's not his. Excuse They're me, alarmed. Sorry. It's my Uber. Um, six, six, six. No, no, no. Oh, no. Huh? You're in the wrong car. Oh. Right. This is my Uber. No. No. It is, it is. No, it's not. It's not. What do you mean it's not? What do you mean? It's my Uber. What do you They're mean? Not bloody Uber. Oh, yeah. Um, it says it on my phone. Well, you can say whatever you like on your phone, but we're not bloody Ubers. Oh, sorry, sorry. It's just him getting into like. I mean, it's not that. It's not funny. He's just getting into some alarmed couple's car, pretending they have an Uber, and then saying over and over it's his Uber. Okay, so this is like a popular person. Well, he's been arrested twice, and he is loathed by large numbers of the public. But his videos do get millions of views, and he, yes, he does have a lot of fans and followers. Although I'm sure many of them are hate watching. Yeah. And some of what he does could maybe get him killed. Like in a recent one, he walks into a random person's apartment. He peeks into bedrooms, including a child's bedroom, and then they see him, and he gets chased out of the apartment by a German shepherd. Uh, in another one, he jumps onto the roof of a moving vehicle and rides it down the street. Okay, so just he's an idiot. Yeah, he's an idiot. And I, I hate this. I think most adults hate this. He he freaks people out. Like at one point, his prank was to walk up to random people on the street and ask if they want to die. Jesus and Christ. When he's been crit- yeah, and when he's criticized for this, and he's filming the whole time, right? And when he's criticized for this, as he should be, he accuses people of being racist and being Karens. Mm-hmm. He's black. But Missy is not actually the subject of the show today. And he's not the first guy to try to get rich and famous by live streaming his very stupid escapades. And today we're going to talk about someone who I think may be Missy's spiritual successor. And this story does not b- begin on TikTok. It begins on Twitch. Jesse, do you Twitch? I don't Twitch. I've watched a fair number of videos of um, YouTube videos where Twitch folks like post, post their highlights. Twitch is just a online video streaming platform uh i think it was like founded to be about video games still mostly video games but yeah like people can stream basically whatever they want on twitch traditionally video game stuff but also there's politics folks on twitch just general discussion so yeah it's live streaming yeah and one thing that's important to understand about twitch is that it's part of the platform is that creators interact with their followers or their viewers so a creator might be playing a video game and then there's a feed of comments on the screen and the creator might respond to those comments so some back and forth there and a lot, for a lot of creators, there's a direct monetary exchange. So Trace explained it to me like this. Chess streamers might accept a donation as an incentive to play a specific opening set of moves, sacrifice a piece early, checkmate their opponent in a specific way, play a game with a donor, etc. Or a Super Smash Bros. streamer might set a donation or subscription incentive goal to attend a tournament. So the audience essentially pays for the creator's attention. And that results in a very specific type of parasocial relationship. And we talked about parasocial relationships on our last Primo episode. And we've talked about audience capture before. And I think the two things are related. And, and that can definitely be an, an issue with any sort of content creators, including podcasters, when you start tailoring your opinions, for instance, based on the people who are giving you money. 
But in our case, like it's not like our listeners actually pay us to cover a story or anything like that. Although maybe we should maybe we should start that program. And with Twitch, it's it's much more direct, right? Um, and like they also they recently announced a feature called Hype Chat, which is similar to YouTube's Super Chat, so that you can pay for a message to be pinned at the top of the the chat screen. And so, yeah, the point is that they have a much more direct connection to their audience than like Instagram influencers or Twitter celebrities would. Yeah. So I'd never watched Twitch before, but as an investigative journalist, I figured I should check it out. So I spent about 30 seconds watching someone play Tetris. Uh, He was speaking Spanish. So for all I know, he could have been reciting Hitler lyrics or speeches. I guess Hitler Hitler wasn't much of a singer-songwriter. His rap Uh, album was okay. (laughs) Mine beat. MC Adolf. Uh, (laughs) But I guess I can see why people would do this. Like, I know for boomers and oldies, the idea of watching someone else play video games is just mystifying. But I I did. Like, I kind of enjoyed it. It it was no more or less boring than watching a basketball game to me. I mean, I I don't want to continue our streak of, like, me mentioning Slay the Spire. But I, as someone who's obsessed with that game, um, there's streamers I watch. Baylor Baylor Lord and uh, Jorbs. it's, if, you, if you're watching something like a video game you know a lot about, of course it's entertaining to watch someone who's good or not good play it. So that shouldn't be surprising. Yeah, I did find one game uh, so incredibly dorky and lame that I couldn't imagine why anyone would watch it. And it, yes, it was Slay the Spire. The, like, the graphics are really bad. Katie, the fact that you would even say that suggests you're not ready to have this conversation. It's Am I wrong Real about that? Don't... It, no, but in ex- so I'm right about God, that. I can't believe I have to hold your hand on Is, this. The shitty graphics are part of the appeal. There's been sort of an, <laughs> well, yeah. So there's been a, something of an indie revolution. They can't all be AAA titles. Oftentimes, graphics don't okay. matter okay. that much. Like okay. some of the okay. best and most beloved indie games, in particular, don't have graphics. You can start with like, all right, I'll, I'll stop there. But yes, no one cares about graphics. Tetris has better graphics. A game built in 1962. Very crisp. Okay, so Twitch is pretty big. It now has an estimated 140 million users. So that's less than Twitter. It's on par with about Tumblr. Um, But people can make a shit ton of money basically playing video games and talking about whatever they feel like talking about. The only one of these guys I follow is his name is Hassan Piker. He's a leftist who's gotten wealthy playing video games and complaining about late capitalism. And he got his start on on the Young Turks, which was a a network started by his uncle. So I guess that makes him a Nepo nephew. (laughs) Yes. Anyway, he quit his real his like actual job to to stream full time. And he's he now streams for like eight hours a day just playing video games and rambling about shit. He has two point five million followers on Twitch. I checked out his stream for the first time the other day and half a million people had tuned in to watch him drink Starbucks and listen to him talk about the new shirt that he bought. (laughs) And this was just a plain black T-shirt. It like it didn't even have a big dog logo. (laughs) Very boring. He wasn't even playing video games that day. Like at one point he started just watching CNN and opining on like the Russia coup. Yeah. And then and then like around hour five, he played a recording of himself taking a, a like a samurai lesson in Japan. No, this is like what a lot of these like Destiny 2 will play video games, but he'll also get in debates with people. He'll he'll respond to articles like when you have that big an audience that feels that connected to you, they'll watch you do basically anything. anything. And I think for some people, it's just like background noise while they work or whatever. Literally anything. It just it made me feel very old. But he's made millions of dollars for this, and he's not even a top Twitch streamer. The current top streamer is Ninja, who has 18.5 million followers. He plays Fortnite. And like every single streamer that I looked into, uh, Ninja, there's a long section on his Wikipedia page for controversies. Of a lot of heated gaming moments over on Twitch. Mm-hmm. Okay, but before there were TikTokers like Mizzy or Twitchers like Hassan Piker. 
there was Ice Poseidon. Jesse, are you familiar with Ice Poseidon? I'm familiar with each word, but not putting them together. Not together. So his government name is Paul Danino, and he is the subject of our story today. So Paul got his start streaming old school RuneScape on Twitch in 2015. Is that a game that you know? Yeah, I think my brother, it's like it's really old. Yeah, it's very a huge, massively multiplayer uh, online role-playing game. I bet the uh, visuals are the better. The graphics than... are not good. No, they're not good. <laughs> Paul was really interactive with his fans, although he didn't have very many in the beginning. Um, and like unlike Hassan Piker, who might like read a donor's comment or answer a question, Paul went way further with his fans. Like sometimes he would call them on the phone. He would let them choose what music he was listening to. And he was really living his whole life online. And he talked about how he had no community or friends outside of the stream. And his channel was pretty middling for the first year, but then Pokemon Go came out in 2016. Did you ever play Pokemon Go? It was like all anybody talked about. A lot of non-gamers were playing it. I did not play it, no. I don't need a video game to convince me to go for a walk. Um, okay, so Paul... Do we need to re- do we, this was the one, in case people don't remember, it was augmented reality. So like you would be told there's a... Pikachu. Whatever the fuck. I assume it's Japanese. Yeah, so I assume like... Uh, no, like a really rare one that probably involves like used panties. <laughs> Um, there's one of those in this real world park near where you live and you can go like under a bush where a man is blowing another man. (laughs) Go find it. Gotta got them all. Gotta get them all. Catch them all. Uh, yeah, that's Pokemon Go. And it was, it was like a fucking phenomenon. Again, a lot of non-gamers sucked into it. Yeah. It was it was weird. Like, it was so big. The, the weekend that I came out, I remember walking around Seattle. I didn't know what the fuck was going on. And there were just packs of people playing this game. And it was just, if you didn't know what was going on, which I didn't at first, it was just like, what is happening here? There's like a, like a mind virus has infected all of these people and is causing them to look at their phones while they walk across the street. Yeah. Okay, so Paul started streaming himself playing Pokemon Go. And he would do this by strapping his his phone camera, his camera to his forehead, and then going out into the world and streaming his interactions with people. And this is when his channel really took off. So he filmed himself having all of these awkward interactions, oftentimes with girls he was hitting on, and his fans ate it up. He called his fans the Purple Army, and this style of streaming became so popular that Twitch launched an IRL section on the site, and now there's a whole genre of streamers who do this kind of thing. Like, they're not just gaming anymore. They're just streaming. They're just, like, living their lives online. Okay, so on these – I mean, what else is he doing on these streams other than, I guess, hitting on women who don't want to talk to him? Okay, so you know Mr. Beast. I mentioned him in the Primo episode. Okay, so you do. Can you explain who he is? Yeah, he um, he's uh, one of the top YouTubers in the world. He's this 20-something guy from North Carolina who um, does all these, like, bizarre – giveaways and contests he tried to recreate squid game he's most famous for giving people just like a house or a car or a massive amount of money and for like the crew or like new eyeballs new eyeball yeah he did he gave a lot of kids surgery uh or people surgery he did one where he just like reattached the foreskin of like ten thousand boys that was his most important work uh and yeah and he has a crew he hangs out with but he's mostly known for these huge charity stunts i think but he's he just everything he does turns to gold he's incredibly popular so Ice Poseidon was sort of like early Mr. Beast style, but less highly produced and without the sort of charitable aspect. So whereas Mr. Beast will have a video that's like, I paid someone $30,000 to spend a month in a sewer, Ice Poseidon's video would be like, would you spend three days in a closet for $4,000? That is, in fact, a real video. Um, in another stream, he's sitting at home and his health is his health is filthy, so he calls a hooker to his house, but instead of having sex with her, he films her cleaning. Uh, here's a clip from that. Jesse, please describe the scene. Okay, there's a dildo and all this like trash on the table, Golden Warriors foam finger. He's making her very uncomfortable because he's threatening to film her and then 
God, this is awful. Okay, that's awful. Yeah, his persona was okay. He's he's an asshole, and his fans were famously kind of assholes too. Uh, two different Ice Poseidon subreddits were banned for abuse, and a number of his fans actually directed their abuse directly at Paul at Ice Poseidon. Why? Why? Why did they turn on him? I don't know. I mean, I think it's sort of a love hate thing. Like they wanted his attention. It was just their weird relationship with him. And yeah. okay, so here's some examples. So because Paul was streaming everywhere he went, his followers would know where he was. And they would fuck with him and basically anyone who, who came into contact with him. So in 2018, Adrian Chen profiled him in The New Yorker. And the piece starts with what happens after Paul goes into a restaurant. Jesse, why don't you read this for me? Chaos follows him. The restaurant starts getting a lot of unusual phone calls. The callers say that they are Paul Danino's father or his mother and they urgently need to talk to their son who is autistic. An employee asks the man if he is Paul Danino. He says yes, but then explains that the callers are pranking him. He is live streaming through the camera on the stick, and some of the thousands of people watching are trying to fuck with him. The calls grow more disturbing. Callers claim that Danino is a pedophile trying to lure children to his lair, or that the large backpack he's wearing contains a bomb rather than a $2,000 cellular transmitter. The restaurant manager asks Danino to leave. Almost immediately, the restaurant's rating on Yelp begins to plummet. Dozens of one-star reviews flood the page within seconds. They're full of obscure references to Danino and to the Purple Army, the name of the legion of virtual fans who follow him wherever he goes. He sounds like a wonderful guy to have interactions with. And that was just one night. Like, this kind of thing happened all the time. And there were some truly dangerous incidents. Like, at one point, he was swatted every day for a month. God, Uh, Also, in 2016, he revealed a girl's phone number on the stream. You can imagine how his fans reacted to that. They called her incessantly. He was suspended from Twitch for 45 days for that. And then in 2017, he was banned from Twitch permanently after he live streamed from an airport that he was about to get on a plane. And one of his followers called in a bomb threat to the plane in Paul's name. Jesus Christ. Right. That made national news. And after he was banned, he moved to YouTube. So he would ask his fans to stop, but in some ways he directly benefited from this kind of harassment because those streams did really well, and so he actually made more money when he was being swatted and harassed. That's uh, that's not a good business model. I mean, I, it's just very ugly. You don't want to pivot? <laughs> yeah, we could do this, right? He just had a very bizarre relationship with his fans. He kept what he called an open door policy at his house, so his fans would just stop by and then become part of what? the stream. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So he had no boundaries with these people, and they increasingly controlled aspects of his life, and no small part because they were literally paying him. So at one point, he started dating another streamer, and his fans didn't like her, so they they tried to force them them to break up. They called her the leech because they thought she was using him, and then they staged a boycott demanding that he dump her. So he eventually did say that they broke up, but his fans found out a few months later that they were actually still together. And of course, they were livid about this, not just because they didn't like the girl, but also because his whole thing was about being transparent and he'd lied to them. Dude, these are such unhealthy parasocial relationships. I think a couple of them are listening to this show right now. <laughs> I'm serious. I saw one in the comments. Oh, no. We love you, Purple Army. Don't come for us. one of the normal yeah. ones. We love you, Purple. Don't don't kill us, Purple Army, please. So uh, one other thing about the fandom is that they're they're kind of racist or like internet racist. And so I don't know that they're like hardened bigots who would like burn a cross on somebody's yard or who genuinely think that some races are inferior to others. 
And they could have been. I don't know. I don't know what's in their hearts and minds. But they very much like using, some of them, very much like using slurs online. And one game the fans used to play was to try to get Paul to say various slurs, not just to fuck with him, but to get him suspended from Twitch or YouTube. How do they get him to say racial slurs? There are various ways to do this. Like, for one thing, you can put something in a comments that, like, isn't a slur but sounds like a slur. I won't say any examples here, but you can use your imagination. And then he also, like, he had a feature where viewers could request a song. So they would request songs that were full of racial slurs, and then he would get suspended for playing them. So once, a particularly intelligent troll noticed that Paul's headphones had a broken left ear. So he created and then requested a song that blared normal music through the right channel and through the left channel, it was just the N-word over and over. So Paul played this having no idea that the N-word was coming over, like was just like playing over his stream over oh and over. Oh my God. Um, I did see the archive of that video, but we will not play it here for obvious reasons. Cancel culture strikes again. They would also do this thing where, okay, okay, so you, when you donate to a stream, your message can get played using text-to-speech technology. They call this TTS. So the donor would write something, and then an automated voice would read it out loud. And so what Paul would do is he would go out in public with this big speaker. He would go out in, like, in L.A. or wherever, and then these messages would be read in this robotic voice from the speaker in his backpack as pe- people donated. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, so here's a clip from from one stream. Uh, at this point, he's buying a coffee in a Starbucks. Hi. Oh, you look fabulous today. Uh, can I get... I'm in the middle of buying coffee, no. Can I get a cold brew tea, sweet tea? Yeah, with a side of you. What? What did it say? Kill faggot. Oh, no, what? No, it didn't. Dude. Why is it not Okay, and then it moves to him in some kind of clothing store. Do you know where, where I can buy a bathing suit at? Marshalls, baby. Marshalls? All right, thank you, dude. Appreciate it. Baby, I want stroke or heart. No, you can say stroke, cock. I want to stroke a baby's No, no, no. Oh, my God. What is you doing? No. Come on, bro. Oh, my, okay. No. I want I want somebody to have a conversation with it. It's just too delayed. Okay. Yeah, that's not good. They're saying very offensive things in public through the, like, text-to-speech thing. So that's the thing. He was making money off this, like first in the form of the donations to read the the text-to-speech. On that particular day, he made $1,000 off of these text-to-speech announcements. And then... The, and like indirectly, he's getting paid because a big part of the draw for other viewers was the trolling itself. So he might get suspended for a couple of days, but he's also profiting because his stream continues to grow. Right. The incentives are all askew. Right. So in 2018, Paul decides to take a road trip. He brings a bunch of his friends in an RV and they drive up the West Coast. And it was on this trip that they meet the next character in our story, Arab Andy. It's uh, not his legal name, I take it? No, his real name is Jamal Haraz. But Ice Poseidon fans, they do this thing where they name the side players in his story. So the people he interacted with who weren't like in the main posse, they they called them Andy. So, for instance, there was Asian Andy, Mexican Andy, Cancer Andy, and Arab Andy was one of those. Cancer guys. Andy had cancer. Cancer Andy had cancer. He did. I tried to find out if Cancer Andy is still living. And I, I surprisingly, Cancer Andy uh, did not show up on any of my searches. Um, so Arab Andy, he was one of these guys. He was in and quickly out of Paul's orbit. He wasn't a main player. Uh, So during this road trip up the West Coast, Ice Poseidon, Paul, 
he meets Arab Andy, a.k.a. Jamal Haraz. And, and Jamal, he's a, an aspiring streamer who lived in the Seattle area. And he did this thing called stream sniping, which is basically figuring out where a streamer is in real time and then crashing the stream so that you're part of it. So Ice and his posse ended up hanging out with Andy for with Arab Andy for a few days and then making content out of it. We have a clip from one of their streams here. So in this clip, they're wandering around Capitol Hill, which is the most annoying neighborhood in Seattle. It's very queer, very trans, very non-binary. It's where Chop Chaz was during the, the George Floyd, Floyd protest. That was the autonomous zone that was supposed to be a cop-free safe haven and ended up being a place where a number of people were raped and killed. Uh, that actually does make it sound more dangerous than it is. I live there. It's also very bourgeois at this point. And like there's lots of tech workers and queer people complaining about tech workers. So they're walking around this neighborhood live streaming, and they approach what looks to be two women sitting outside a bar. Ice talks first. Excuse me. We're doing a, uh, a survey uh, in Seattle, and I was wondering if we could ask you guys a question. Sure. What's the question? How many genders are there? Uh, there's thousands and millions of genders, and any gender you want to be, you can be. What does that mean, though? I what what like do you categorize a penis as? Um, uh, it's a penis. It's just genitalia. Um, it doesn't actually mean the same thing as gender. I, myself, uh, I'm non-binary. Um, so you don't have a gender? No. I, I think gender is false. I don't think it's a real thing, you know? So, uh, he scares me. that it's a... Can I ask you what the research for? Yeah, what's the research for? Oh, I'm doing a school project. I'm going around and trying to see that everyone's uh, ideologies about gender, neutral genderism. Yeah, what's your gender? What, what are your approaches? Well, um, I'm a dude. Cool. I'm a man. I'm a guy. I'm attracted. I'm attracted to women. I I, I want to make babies. I actually have. Uh, so you're a straight man. I've, I've, I've gotten a girl pregnant before. That's awesome. I've been pregnant before. Interesting. Yes, I have been pregnant. So if you're being pregnant, does that make you a gal? No. It means I have the utility to make a child. It does not mean I'm a man or a woman. What is that utility? How did... Here, let me talk. It's how, called an ovaries and a uterus. How, how did you come to the conclusion that you were non-binary? I came to the conclusion because I was tired of um, people assuming my gender because I am femme-presenting. Well, now they'll... But they're just going to assume it more now because you don't have a gender. No, they could just be respectful and be like, ask me what my pronouns are. This is very painful to watch because like they're just fucking streaming these two innocent people just sitting there with drinks and the comments are like what you'd expect. Um, It just seems, it's just, again, this whole guy, it's just ugly is what all this shit is. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing that they were doing in Seattle, basically trying to trigger the libs, and which was, of course, very easy to do. And this is big news in the Seattle, like queer Seattle Facebook groups with people warning each other that these Nazis were in town looking to harass queer people. And like, I wouldn't call them Nazis. I don't think that's the right word to describe what they're doing, but they're definitely being annoying. They're just assholes. Yeah, they're assholes. They're intentionally provoking people and then filming their reactions for entertainment, for clicks. And of course, people in Seattle are more than happy to play the role of the triggered libs. Okay, so Arab Andy, he's basically tagging along, he, but he gets a little taste of fame through this. He called his own channel Isis Poseidon, and it goes from basically zero to 2,000 subs, and he began live streaming his adventures around Seattle. So remember a few minutes ago when I told you about Ice Poseidon playing his donations through a speaker, this text-to-speech thing? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Andy does that too. He basically streams himself walking around crowded streets or the bus or the University of Washington campus. He's got a speaker with him. 
and then it blares whatever his donors pay for. He doesn't know what's coming in advance. He doesn't curate these sounds whatever whatsoever. So one stream, for instance, he was on a bus while the speaker screams the N-word. Um, he also did this in a random class at the University of Washington, disrupting the class until the professor kicked him out. He also went to a parade. Some offensive shit came out of the speaker. A cop approaches him, and then he starts streaming himself talking to the cops while the speaker plays this, like, horrible moaning and groaning like someone is being railed in his backpack. But the low point came on June 1st, 2018, when he's again at the University of Washington. He goes to a meeting in the sociology department, and here is what happens next. Jesse, please describe what you see. Where you're supposed to be? I think so. C4 has been successfully activated. Bomb detonation countdown successfully started. Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah, they all start fleeing. What a piece of shit, man. (laughs) Yeah, so someone paid $4.20 and uh, played what amounts to a bomb threat, and everyone around fled in terror. And and sorry, I'm calling uh, fucking ISIS Poseidon whatever a piece of shit too because his whole point is to generate moments like this. He's he's responsible for this. Yeah, and, and Andy, instead of getting the fuck out of there, he just wanders around campus still streaming until he's apprehended by police, which he also streams. And you can hear that he's actually surprised at being arrested. He's he's totally naive. So here's a clip from that stream. Wait, what's going on? On the ground, don't make any sudden movements. Okay, I'm recording, bro, if you're going to shoot me. That's fine. What are you doing, bro? Put the gun down. Put the gun down. What are you doing, bro? You got me? What are you doing, bro? Record all you want, that's totally fine. Move this way. He's he's surprised the police have the guns out when his fucking backpack is screaming out a bomb threat. What a this guy is such a fucking moron, man. I don't know. To hate him or to almost feel bad for him? What, what Did he end up yeah. getting charged? Was he in legal trouble? Yeah, he was charged with making a bomb threat. Uh, this also made national news. There was a Daily Beast story. This was by Will Summer. The headline was, YouTube stars get rich making bomb threats and streaming it. It is completely overstating Arab Andy's fame and his riches. Here, here's one paragraph from there. Haraz, a comparatively little-known streamer, told police he made $1,000 over just a month of live streaming. He, he says that like, that's a lot of money, including $200 made in the two hours before his arrest. Haraz made so much money broadcasting user comments that prosecutors wrote that despite his arrest, he has no incentive to stop his activities. No. He, that's a confusing paragraph because right. he, he made $1,000 and it said he made so much. Uh, anyway. Yes, he did not get rich. He was broke. And in fact, he made so little money that he couldn't afford to pay his bail. And he spent four months in the King County Jail before being released on probation. So part of the terms of his probation was that he seek mental health and substance abuse counseling and that he not post anything on YouTube or stream for two years. Uh, He did release a weird jailhouse video about being Arab Andy. Just here's a clip from that. Yo, what is up, guys? It's Arab Andy. And pretty much I'm going to explain the situation. You know, uh, I did get... uh, I'm getting released really soon on probation, but the probation is not using the YouTube channel for at least, I don't know, but it's going to be at least a year, two years. I can't go on YouTube, Well, I can still watch videos, just can't upload videos to YouTube or uh, make live streams and stuff like that. But I really want to thank all the donators and everything, like, donators with a ham. 
two donations. It was insane. I want to thank all the fans on Discord and, you know, fans, friends, pretty much at this point, you know. It's on the Reddit. Fucking, you know, you know, okay, Andy did change my life, man. It was the best time of my life. Most greatest thing I've ever done, you know. And the most craziest thing I've ever done. And, you know, I definitely will, you know, I definitely do that with the publishers listed, you know. Because I, I love doing YouTube. Even before I was, here I Andy was on YouTube. Man, you know, like, I really was looking forward to getting out of here and doing more streams and stuff like that. But it's just, it's just, it seems like they're not going to let me go, you know, that easy. It's just bizarre. Yeah, so after he was released on probation, he did stay offline for a while, but then he reappeared making, of all things, K-pop content. He's a K-pop fan. Of course. That was not a big hit, so he disappeared for a while, and then he just came back again recently with a new channel. I watched a few of his streams from last week, and it's depressing. Like, in one, he's sitting in a forest, and he talks for a while about how he's been smoking a lot of weed. In another, he accosts a man in the woods. He sounds drunk. He still has ambitions to be a streamer, and he says he wants to move away from Arabandi, but I got to say, it's not great content, and he seems kind of fucked up. I did reach out to him. We DM back and forth a little bit. I went into this thinking that he was an asshole who was just scaring people for clicks, which is true, but after talking to him a little bit, I just kind of feel bad for him. I asked him about his time in jail, and he said, it was really hard and scary being around a bunch of dangerous criminals, not knowing when I was going to get out, and constantly seeing fights, and people keep talking shit to me, constantly moving cells. It was very rough. I felt very unsafe. Food was bad. I hardly got to talk to anybody besides who visited me. It was so rough. I also asked if he regretted what he did, and he didn't answer that. But I do feel kind of bad for the guy. He wanted to be the next Ice Poseidon, and he ended up in jail. But he hasn't, like, he still has ambitions to make something of this. Like, he asked me several times, like, can I get a shout-out? Can I get a shout-out on your show? So, yes, here's your shout-out. Oh, God. Sort of. Sort of. Did he, um, did you reach out to Ice Poseidon about his role in this? I did. I DM'd him, and he initially wrote back, and I sent him a bunch of questions that he didn't answer. He At one point, he did take a tiny bit of responsibility for Arab Andy. So here I'm going to play a clip from a documentary from a guy named Internet AJ. You're going to hear Ice Poseidon speaking and Internet AJ narrating. Arab Andy literally happened because of me. And I didn't want to ever admit that before because it's just like, that's awful. But, you know, because of me being careless, that leads to other people being careless as well. He mentioned that if he just moderated his own content more and advised streamers not to do TTS in public places, then this never would have happened. I really feel like if I would have just taken a better approach to IRL streaming and not been so careless, other people like Arabandi wouldn't have been so fucking careless. You know, if I would have just been like, don't ever fucking do this, don't do TTS in public, this and that, like people would have, you know, Arabandi wouldn't be in jail. He even went so far as to call himself a bad influence. He looked up to my streams, and I just was a very bad influence, and that led him to down a dark path. Okay, so he's taking like a little responsibility, I guess? Yeah, the link to the full documentary will be in the show notes, by the way. It's uh, interesting. And is Ice Poseidon still streaming? He is. He does seem to have matured a little bit, like he's almost in his 30s now. A lot of his content is travel-related now. It's just not as popular, though. Like, his streams get in the low to mid tens of thousands of views rather than millions of views. So right now That's he's- still a lot of- Oh, views total, not concurrence. Okay, right. no, that's not that's not that great now. Right. So he's in Asia right now. Last month he streamed from Mount Everest. He wanted to be like, you know, first streamer from Basecamp or whatever. He also got into boxing, which seems like the the natural 
course of progression for any male influencer. The women get into Botox and the men get into boxing. Uh, but his moment in the sun does seem to be diminishing just based on views. One more note about Ice Poseidon. In 2022, the YouTuber CoffeeZilla, who you actually talked about on our last Primo episode, he reported that Paul Danino scammed his followers out of $300,000. This involves some crypto coin he founded. So maybe that's also the natural course of progression for influencers, boxing and shit coins. Uh, he denied that it was a scam, and we'll post a link to his statement about this in the show notes. Well, Katie, I now know about a bunch of people I didn't know existed, and I wish I could go back to that earlier state, but thank you, I guess inform me of Ice Poseidon, Arabandi, and the rest of the crew? Yeah, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with Mizzy, the guy we talked about in the beginning. He, his his new pivot, he's been banned from TikTok, so his new pivot is that he's doing, like, Andrew Tate-type type content. Oh, God. Yeah, so... It's not more of that natural evolution. So we got we got Andrew Tate, and then next up, it's going to be MMA and uh, crypto coins. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Katie. You're welcome. This has been Blocked and Reported. As always, we are produced with help from Tracing Woodgrains and the Mysterious Lex. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, invest in my special training program that teaches people to be more open-minded about DEI programs. And I'm Katie Herzog, and also remember, when we said service animal, that's not what we meant. <laughs>